Section 12 of Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2, Section 12, Chapters 57 through 62. Chapter 57 while the workshop for executing my Perseus was in building, I used to work in a ground-floor room. Here I modelled the statue in plaster, giving it the same dimensions as the bronze was meant to have, and intending to cast it from this mould. But finding that it would take rather long to carry it out in this way, I resolved upon another expedient, especially as now a wretched little studio had been erected, brick on brick, so miserably built that the mere recollection of it gives me pain. So then, I began the figure of Medusa, and constructed the skeleton in iron. Afterwards I put on the clay, and when that was modelled, baked it. I had no assistants except some little shop-boys, among whom was one of great beauty. He was the son of a prostitute called La Gambetta. I made use of the lad as a model, for the only books which teach this art are the natural human body. Meanwhile, as I could not do everything alone, I looked about for workmen in order to put the business quickly through, but I was unable to find any. There were indeed some in Florence who would willingly have come, but Bandinello prevented them, and after keeping me in want of aid a while, told the Duke that I was trying to entice his workpeople because I was quite incapable of setting up so great a statue by myself. I complained to the Duke of the annoyance which the brute gave me, and begged him to allow me some of the laborers from the opera. My request inclined him to lend ear to Bandinello's calumnies, and when I noticed that, I set about to do my utmost by myself alone. The labor was enormous, I had to strain every muscle night and day, and just then the husband of my sister sickened and died after a few days' illness. He left my sister, still young, with six girls of all ages on my hands. This was the first great trial I endured in Florence, to be made the father and guardian of such a distressed family. CHAPTER 58 In my anxiety that nothing should go wrong, I sent for two hand-laborers to clear my garden of rubbish. They came from Ponte Vecchio, the one an old man of sixty years, the other a young fellow of eighteen. After employing them about three days, the lad told me that the old man would not work, and that I had better send him away, since beside being idle, he prevented his comrade from working. The little I had to do there could be done by himself, without throwing money away on other people. The youth was called Bernardino Manolini of Mugello. When I saw that he was so inclined to labor, I asked whether he would enter my service, and we agreed upon the spot. He groomed my horse, gardened, and soon essayed to help me in the workshop, with such success that by degrees he learned the art quite nicely. I never had a better assistant than he proved. Having made up my mind to accomplish the whole affair with this man's aid, I now let the Duke know that Bandinello was lying, and that I could get on famously without his workpeople. Just at this time I suffered slightly in the loins, and being unable to work hard, I was glad to pass my time in the Duke's wardrobe, with a couple of young goldsmiths called Gian Pagolo and Domenico Pagini, who made a little golden cup under my direction. It was chased in bas-relief with figures and other pretty ornaments and his excellency meant it for the duchess to drink water out of. He furthermore commissioned me to execute a golden belt, which I enriched with gems and delicate masks and other fancies. 
the duke came frequently into the wardrobe and took great pleasure in watching me at work and talking to me. When my health improved, I had clay brought, and took a portrait of His Excellency, considerably larger than life-size, which I modeled while he stayed with me for a pastime. He was highly delighted with this piece, and conceived such a liking for me that he earnestly begged me to take up my working quarters in the palace, selecting rooms large enough for my purpose, and fitting them up with furnaces and all I wanted, for he greatly enjoyed watching the processes of art. I replied that this was impossible. I should not have finished my undertakings in a hundred years. The Duchess also treated me with extraordinary graciousness, and would have been pleased if I had worked for her alone, forgetting Perseus and everything besides. I, for my part, while these vain favors were being showered upon me, knew only too well that my perverse and biting fortune could not long delay to send me some fresh calamity, because I kept ever before my eyes the great mistake I had committed while seeking to do a good action. I refer to my affairs in France. The king could not swallow the displeasure he felt at my departure, and yet he wanted me to return, if only this could be brought about without concessions on his part. I thought that I was entirely in the right, and would not bend submissively, because I judged that if I wrote in humble terms, those enemies of mine would say in their French fashion that I had confessed myself to blame, and that certain misdoings with which they wrongfully taxed me were proved true. Therefore I stood upon my honour, and wrote in terms of haughty coldness, which was precisely what those two traitors, my apprentices, most heartily desired. In my letters to them I boasted of the distinguished kindness shown me in my own birthplace by a prince and princess, the absolute masters of Florence. Whenever they received one of these dispatches they went to the king, and besieged his majesty with entreaties for the castle upon the same terms as he had granted it to me. The king, who was a man of great goodness and perspicacity, would never consent to the presumptuous demands of those scoundrels, since he scented the malignity of their aims. Yet wishing to keep them in expectation, and to give me the opportunity of coming back, he caused an angry letter to be written to me by his treasurer, Messer Giuliano Bonacorsi, a burgher of Florence. The substance was as follows. If I wanted to preserve the reputation for honesty which I had hitherto enjoyed, it was my plain duty, after leaving France with no cause whatsoever, to render an account of all that I had done and dealt with for His Majesty. The receipt of this letter gave me such pleasure that if I had consulted my own palate I could not have wished for either more or less. I sat down to write an answer and filled nine pages of ordinary paper. In this document I described in detail all the works which I had executed, and all the adventures I had gone through while performing them, and all the sums which had been spent upon them. The payments had always been made through two notaries and one of His Majesty's treasurers, and I could show receipts from all the men into whose hands they passed whether for goods supplied or labor rendered. I had not pocketed one penny of the money, nor had I received any reward for my completed works. I brought back with me into Italy nothing but some marks of favor and most royal promises, truly worthy of His Majesty. Now, though I cannot vaunt myself of any recompense beyond the salaries appointed for my maintenance in France, seven hundred golden crowns of which are still due, inasmuch as I abstained from drawing them until I could employ them on my return journey, Yet knowing that malicious foes out of their envious hearts have played some knavish trick against me, I feel confident that truth will prevail. I take pride in His Most Christian Majesty and am not moved by avarice. I am indeed aware of having performed for Him far more than I undertook, 
and albeit the promised reward has not been given me, my one anxiety is to remain in His Majesty's opinion that man of probity and honour which I have always been. If Your Majesty entertains the least doubt upon this point, I will fly to render an account of my conduct at the risk even of my life. But noticing in what slight esteem I am held, I have had no mind to come back and make an offer of myself, knowing that I shall never lack for bread whithersoever I may go. If, however, I am called for, I will always answer. The letter contained many further particulars worthy of the King's attention, and proper to the preservation of my honour. Before dispatching it I took it to the Duke, who read it with interest. Then I sent it into France, addressed to the Cardinal of Ferrara. CHAPTER Sixty. About this time Bernardone Baldini, broker in jewels to the Duke, bought a big diamond from Venice, which weighed more than thirty-five carats. Antonio, son of Vittorio Landi, was also interested in getting the Duke to purchase it. The stone had been cut with a point, but since it did not yield the purity of luster which one expects in such a diamond, its owners had cropped the point, and in truth it was not exactly fit for either point or table-cutting. Our duke, who greatly delighted in gems, though he was not a sound judge of them, held out good hopes to the rogue Bernardaccio that he would buy this stone, and the fellow, wanting to secure for himself alone the honour of palming it off upon the Duke of Florence, abstained from taking his partner Antonio Landi into the secret. Now Landi had been my intimate friend from childhood, and when he saw that I enjoyed the duke's confidence, he called me aside, it was just before noon, at a corner of the Mercato Nuovo, and spoke as follows. Benvenuto, I am convinced that the Duke will show you a diamond which he seems disposed to buy. You will find it a big stone. Pray assist the purchase. I can give it for seventeen thousand crowns. I feel sure he will ask your advice, and if you see that he has a mind for it, we will contrive that he secures it. Antonio professed great confidence in being able to complete the bargain for the jewel at that price. In reply I told him that if my advice was taken I would speak according to my judgment, without prejudice to the diamond. As I have above related, the Duke came daily into our goldsmith's workshop for several hours, and about a week after this conversation with Antonio Landi, he showed me one day after dinner the diamond in question, which I immediately recognized by its description, both as to form and weight. I have already said that its water was not quite transparent, for which reason it had been cropped. So when I found it of that kind and quality, I felt certainly disinclined to recommend its acquisition. However, I asked His Excellency what he wanted me to say, because it was one thing for jewellers to value a stone after a prince had bought it, and another thing to estimate it with a view to purchase. He replied that he bought it, and that he only wanted my opinion. I did not choose to abstain from hinting what I really thought about the stone. Then he told me to observe the beauty of its great facets. I answered that this feature of the diamond was not so great a beauty as His Excellency supposed, but came from the point having been cropped. At these words my prince, who perceived that I was speaking the truth, made a wry face, and bade me give good heed to valuing the stone and saying what I thought it worth. I reckoned that since Landi had offered it to me for seventeen thousand crowns, the duke might have got it for fifteen thousand at the highest. So, noticing that he would take it ill if I spoke the truth, I made my mind up to uphold him in his false opinion, and handing back the diamond said, You will probably have paid eighteen thousand crowns. On hearing this the duke uttered a loud oh, opening his mouth as wide as a well, and cried out, Now am I convinced that you understand nothing about the matter. 
I retorted, you are certainly in the wrong there, my lord. Do you attend to maintaining the credit of your diamond, while I attend to understanding my trade? But pray tell me at least how much you paid, in order that I might learn to understand it according to the way of your excellency. The duke rose, and with a little sort of angry grin, replied, Twenty-five thousand crowns and more, Benvenuto, did that stone cost me. Having thus spoken, he departed. Giovan Pagolo and Domenico Poggini, the goldsmiths, were present, and Baciaca, the embroiderer, who was working in an adjacent room, ran up at the noise. I told them that I should never have advised the duke to purchase it, but if his heart was set on having it, Antonio Landi had offered me the stone eight days ago for seventeen thousand crowns. I think I could have got it for fifteen thousand or less. But the duke apparently wishes to maintain his gem in credit, for when Antonio Landi was willing to let it go at that price, how the devil can Bernadone have played off such a shameful trick upon his excellency? Never imagining that the matter stood precisely as the duke averred, we laughingly made light of his supposed credulity. CHAPTER Sixty One. Meanwhile I was advancing with my great statue of Medusa. I had covered the iron skeleton with clay, which I modelled like an anatomical subject, and about half an inch thinner than the bronze would be. This I baked well, and then began to spread on the wax surface, in order to complete the figure to my liking. The duke, who often came to inspect it, was so anxious lest I should not succeed with the bronze, that he wanted me to call in some master to case it for me. He was continually talking in the highest terms of my acquirements and accomplishments. This made his major-domo no less continually eager to devise some trap for making me break my neck. Now his post at court gave him authority with the chief constables and all the officers in the poor, unhappy town of Florence. Only to think that a fellow from Prato, our hereditary foeman, the son of a cooper, and the most ignorant creature in existence, should have risen to such a station of influence, merely because he had been the rotten tutor of Cosimo de' Medici before he became duke. Well, as I have said, he kept ever on the watch to serve me some ill turn, and finding that he could not catch me out on any side, he fell at last upon this plan, which meant mischief. He betook himself to Gambetta, the mother of my apprentice Sencio, and this precious pair together, that knave of a pedant and that rogue of a strumpet, invented a scheme for giving me such a fright as would make me leave Florence in hot haste. Gambetta, yielding to the instinct of her trade, went out, acting under the orders of that mad knavish pedant, the major-domo. I must add that they had also gained over the Bargello a Bolognese whom the duke afterwards dismissed for similar conspiracies. Well, one evening after sunset Gambetta came to my house with her son, and told me she had kept him several days indoors for my welfare. I answered that there was no reason to keep him shut up on my account, and laughing her whorish arts to scorn, I turned to the boy in her presence, and said these words, You know, Sencia, whether I have sinned with you. He began to shed tears, and answered, No. Upon this the mother, shaking her head, cried out at him, Ugh, you little scoundrel, do you think I do not know how these things happen? Then she turned to me, and begged me to keep the lad hidden in my house, because the Bargello was after him, and would seize him anywhere outside my house. But there they would not dare to touch him. I made answer that in my house lived my widowed sister and six girls of holy life, and that I wanted nobody else there. Upon that she related that the major-domo had given orders to the Bargello, and that I should certainly be taken up. Only, if I would not harbour her son, I might square accounts by paying her a hundred crowns. 
The major-domo was her crony, and I might rest assured that she could work him to her liking, provided I paid down the hundred crowns. This cousinage goaded me into such a fury that I cried, Out with you, shameful strumpet! Were it not for my good reputation, and for the innocence of this unhappy boy of yours here, I should long ago have cut your throat with a dagger at my side, and twice or thrice I have already clasped my fingers on the handle. With words to this effect, and many ugly blows to boot, I drove the woman and her son into the street. CHAPTER Sixty Two. When I reflected on the roguery and power of that evil-minded pedant, I had judged it best to give a wide berth to his infernal machinations. So early next morning I mounted my horse and took the road for Venice, leaving in my sister's hands jewels and articles to the value of nearly two thousand crowns. I took with me my servant, Bernardino of Mugello, and when I reached Ferrara I wrote word to His Excellency the Duke that though I had gone off without being sent I should come back again without being called for. On arriving at Venice, and pondering upon the diverse ways my cruel fortune took to torment me, yet at the same time feeling myself none the less sound in health and hearty, I made up my mind to fence with her according to my want. While thus engrossed in thoughts about my own affairs, I went abroad for pastime through that beautiful and sumptuous city, and paid visits to the admirable painter Titian, and to Jacopo del Sansovino, our able sculptor and architect from Florence. The latter enjoyed an excellent appointment under the Signoria of Venice, and we have been acquainted during our youth in Rome and Florence. These two men of genius received me with marked kindness. The day afterwards I met Monsieur Lorenzo de' Medici, who took me by the hand at once, giving me the warmest welcome which could be imagined, because we had known each other in Florence when I was coining for Duke Alessandro, and afterwards in Paris while I was in the King's service. At that time he sojourned in the house of Monsieur Giuliano Bonacorsi, and having nowhere else to go for pastime without the greatest peril of his life, he used to spend a large part of the day in my house, watching me working at the great pieces I produced there. As I was saying, our former acquaintance led him to take me by the hand and bring me to his dwelling, where I found the prior degli Strozzi, brother of my lord Piero. While making good cheer together, they asked me how long I intended to remain in Venice thinking that I was on my return journey into France. To these gentlemen I replied that I had left Florence on account of the events I have described above, and that I meant to go back after two or three days, in order to resume my service with the Duke. On hearing this, the prior and Messer Lorenzo turned round on me with such sternness that I felt extremely uneasy. Then they said to me, You would do far better to return to France, where you are rich and well known for if you go back to Florence you will lose all that you have gained in France, and will earn nothing there but annoyances. I made no answer to these words, and departed the next day as secretly as I was able, turning my face again towards Florence. In the meanwhile that infernal plot had come to a head and broken, for I had written to my great master the Duke, giving him a full account of the causes of my escapade to Venice. I went to visit him without any ceremony, and was received with his usual reserve and austerity. Having maintained this attitude a while, he turned toward me pleasantly, and asked where I had been. I answered that my heart had never moved one inch from his most illustrious excellency, although some weighty reasons had forced me to go a-roaming for a little while. Then, softening still more in manner, he began to question me concerning Venice, and after this wise we conversed some space of time. At last he bade me apply myself to a business, and complete his Perseus. 
So I returned home glad and light-hearted, and comforted my family, that is to say, my sister and her six daughters. Then I resumed my work, and pushed it forward as briskly as I could. End of section 12